got a couple people in the bathroom to go through with coffee. So I'm going to start off with a couple jokes, and then we'll get into the sauce number two. So <clears throat> we'll do one heaven joke again and one, uh, one Jesuit joke. And that's right, I have a theme that's happening. Okay. Three women die together in an accident, and they all go to heaven. When they get there, they encounter St. Peter. St. Peter says we have one rule in heaven. That's it. Do not step on the dust. The women look at each other a little puzzled, go about their day. Well, they walk in and they see ducks covering the floor. And they realize it's going to be a lot harder command to follow than they realize. So the first woman by accident steps on a duck. Poof, Peter shows up and he says, I told you not to step on the ducks. For your punishment, I have this very, very ugly man and you will be chained to him for all of eternity. And she looks at this very, very ugly man and is like, oh, so sad. She walks away. Next woman and the other two women are like a little nervous now. So they're walking about and they're doing a better job. And a couple days later, second woman steps on a duck. St. Peter shows up. And he goes, sorry, you stepped on a duck. You have this extremely ugly, smelly man that you'll be chained to for all of eternity. And she's like, no. So the third woman now is on the lookout. Every duck she sees, she's moving around. She's not stepping on anything. She does really great. Weeks and weeks go by. Months, she's killing it. All of a sudden, St. Peter shows up. She looks at St. Peter. He looks at her. And he has this gorgeous man. Just like amazing. Pick your favorite Hollywood actor. She's like, what have I done? And St. Peter chains her to him and walks away. And she looks at the man and she goes, what have I done to deserve it? He goes, well, I don't know what you've done, but I just stepped on a duck. Okay, there was a priest retreat, and these three priests are kind of older, and they're on this retreat, and they were invited on this retreat to, to share some of their struggles with each other. And so you have a Dominican, a Franciscan, and a Jesuit. The Dominican goes first, and he's kind of oh, he's a little embarrassed. He's like, guys, um, I, I don't know what to say, but I'm really grateful I have a safe space for sharing this. Um, and I decided from the retreat director's prompting to share my biggest struggle. And so I am a recovering alcoholic. And the, and the two priests nod, the Franciscan and the Jesuit nod, and Thank you, my brother, for sharing. You know, this is a space for that kind of sharing. So they all look at the Franciscans. The Franciscan goes next, and he goes, you know, I'm really glad to be among friends, to be among companions, and, and my greatest weakness is gambling. And I've just been recovering gambling addict, and I, and I really struggle, um, you know, missing it. And the Jesuit and the Dominican nod, and they say, oh, my brother, so grateful you could share that, so grateful you get that off your heart. And so the Dominican and the Franciscan look at the Jesuit, and he says, you know, guys, this is really tough for me to share I've been working on this bad uh, sin and vice my entire life. I can't kick it, and even these retreats never help me. I'm a terrible gossip, so um, that's what I have. <laughs> I thought this guy was going to be funny. All right. <laughs> Talk number two, the missionary character of Advent. I hope if you saw the talk title, this one grabbed your attention the most. Um, this one uh, should. Why is Advent a missionary season? 
it seems like a surprise, and it, and it should. Advent seems like a season that is anything but missionary. It would be a season that appears to be quiet, still, and tranquil. It's interesting to me as I reflect on the celebration of Advent, both in culture and in Christian context, that it seems to be a season that builds up a sense of home, a sense of coziness, a sense of comfort, a sense of the familiar. These are good realities. As family gatherings are planned, decorations are set up, and as vacations or staycations are prepared. Yet in our reading from St. Paul in weeks two and four of this Advent season, we are challenged to see Advent as a missionary season, as a season full of movement outward. An Advent heart, in the eyes of Paul, is a missionary heart. This should not surprise us, because we look closely at the events of that first Christmas, we will see the seeds of God's missionary activity. The incarnation is a work of the Trinity on mission. The angel Gabriel, Mary, Joseph, all share in God's missionary plan of salvation, which takes its definitive turn and builds upon Christ. At this birth, the wise men from the Orient are drawn to Christ, as are the Jewish shepherds, the Romans and religious leaders of Christ's day are shaken and themselves in some small way go on journeys or missions. The greetings of the angels and the shepherds hold a missionary context. Peace on earth. Remember at the time, the peace that the world looked for was found in Caesar Augustus. The peace that the gospel proclaims is grounded in Christ. That's a charged statement, peace on earth. Meant to bring comfort, yes but a missionary comfort. We talked in the talk number one that the heavenly hosts that show up are not a comforting angelic presence in the sense of like the children of the womb, but it's a missionary movement on behalf of God. The battlefield of the human heart and of earth, you know, we might say in C.S. Lewis's language, Aslan is on the move. Winter is being gone. So God's peace and God's army are on the move at the birth of Christ. We talked about the birth of Christ being a place of feeding. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Manger, the place where animals feed, literally. The first Christmas draws people together, sends them back out like the wise men, it says in scripture, by another way. By another way. Because if you've really encountered Christ, if you've been fed by Christ, you can never retrace your steps, ever. You always go out by another Yes, God's activity in that first nativity was missionary. And when Paul takes up that missionary mantle decades later in the footsteps of Jesus, he sees himself in line with God's purpose. For he says, For I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, but so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He quotes Psalms there. Paul is convinced that Christ was a minister and a missionary first to the Jewish people. And now he, Paul, is called to praise God among the Gentiles and to continue Christ's missionary uh, movement into the world. Our church picks up on this. Vatican II 
St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis. There's been awakening to this reality that as Christians, we are missionaries by the fact that we are Christians. The council says, the church has a missionary nature, basing it in a dynamic way on the Trinitarian mission itself. The missionary thrust, therefore, belongs to the very nature of our Christian life and is also the inspiration for reaching out to people in conversion. In virtue of their baptism, all the members of the people of God have become missionary disciples. Every Christian is a missionary to the extent that he or she has encountered the love of God in Jesus Christ. We no longer say we are disciples or missionaries, but rather that we are always missionary disciples. And if we are not convinced, let us look at those first disciples, who immediately after encountering the gaze of Jesus, went forth to proclaim him joyfully, we have found the Messiah. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and its decisive direction. Pope Emeritus Benedict, Pope John Paul II, Pope Francis of Vatican II were just quoted. There's something that our church is trying to call out to us that being Christian makes us missionaries, not in the sense necessarily like Francis Xavier to go to foreign lands, but now in your families, in your church, and in your city. Through an encounter with Christ, we are empowered to become missionaries in our church. Our baptism makes us anointed for mission. Advent and St. Paul reminds us that this mission begins with an encounter with Christ, going outward to share that with others. So the fourth week of Advent, fourth week of Advent, right before Christmas, Paul writes in Romans 1. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand to his prophets, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be a son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Can you hear the Advent awakening, the Advent shaping, the Advent missioning in his words? We hear the fruit of Paul having been shaken in Galatians and Acts when he says, Paul, a slave for Christ Jesus. This phrase is classic Paul. It's jarring, and it's rightfully jarring. He intends it to be jarring. It's not a slave that we would think about in our culture. It's better translated as bond servant. That's what that means. He says this elsewhere in Colossians. I'm a bond servant to Christ, meaning I have a debt before sin. Christ paid that debt, and now I am in debt to Christ, a slave and a bondservant for Christ through the cross. He says in Colossians, and even when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Christ, brought you to life along with him, having forgiven you of your transgressions, obliterating the bond which is against you with its legal claims, which was opposed to us 
He removed it from our midst, nailing it to the cross. So in Paul's conception, we have a bond against us, our sin and our death. Christ takes that and nails it to the cross, obliterating our bond, which doesn't free us to do as we wish, but brings us into relationship with God. He says elsewhere in Romans, you're either a slave to Christ or a slave to sin. Choose. But now that you have been freed, Romans 6, from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is holiness. Romans 6, 22. There's something about this image that Paul is picking up on that he thinks is fundamental. So his shaking, his moment on the road to Damascus, crafts in him this word, I am a slave for Jesus Christ. I'm a bondservant to Jesus Christ that peppers his writings and indicates that Advent awakening that happened in Paul. An Advent heart, in Paul's mind, is one totally aware of our need and dependence upon Christ. Not in shame or guilt, but in gratitude for the gift of our salvation, which wiped away our bond to sin from all time. Therefore, a grace to pray for this Advent, to have an Advent heart like Paul's, is to be aware of our neediness for God and that our bond was really obliterated at the cross. And how do we get access to Christ's freedom from this? Through the sacraments. Paul is very clear in Romans, through baptism, through the Eucharist, through our prayer, that is how we get access to freedom in Christ. And it is from this neediness that we hear in Romans 1 in the fourth week of Advent that Paul is compelled outward to preach to the Gentiles. This heart that is totally grateful for being a slave to Jesus now wants to share that with the world. So what is his missionary message? Three things. Advent as a season to proclaim God's faithfulness. Paul says he was set about to preach the gospel of God, which God promised previously through the prophets and holy scriptures, the gospel about his son, descended from David according to the flesh. What is Paul's emphasis there? That God is remaining faithful to the message of the Old Testament through Jesus Christ. He is being a missionary of God's faithfulness. Jesus Christ, while new, is not radically discordant with what happened in the Old Testament. There is something about Jesus' life that stands on top of. And we know this as Catholics in our scripture study, but it's important. Paul had no textbook, no, no manual for this. He's learning about this on the fly, and he gives us these powerful words. In week two of Advent, he says that he proclaims a message to the Gentile and Jew alike that promises to witness to God's faithfulness. Now, this is a key theme in his letter to the Romans, which sometimes trips us up when we study our text. Throughout the letter to Romans, Paul constantly uses the phrase, the faithfulness of God. It's a key part of his letter. It's a key part of his message. Now, who's the community in Rome? It's a community mostly of Gentiles with some Jews. But he's still convinced of God's faithfulness, both to Gentile and Jew alike. Now, how do we understand that phrase, the faithfulness of God? Well, oftentimes Christians will talk about our salvation for those who believe or have faith in Christ. So now what's the emphasis? I put my faith in Christ and I have been saved. They use Paul and Paul's use of Romans to say the emphasis is on my act of faith in God. For Paul says in Romans 3, he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. However, the emphasis for Paul is never on the I 
that's always on Jesus. So that translation is messed up. For Paul, God's righteousness is not our faith in Jesus, but rather Jesus' faithfulness to God, his obedience to the Father. God justifies those who have the faithfulness of Jesus, not just faith in Jesus. Where do we get the faithfulness of Jesus? For Paul, it's by putting on Christ through the sacraments and through our prayers. So Paul is clear when he preaches the faithfulness of God, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's mission manifests God's faithfulness. We are called to share in that faithfulness by uniting ourselves to Christ. It's not some kind of passive, I believe in Jesus and therefore I'm good. I believe in Jesus and therefore I'm saved. Paul wants to go deeper than that. Do you have the faithfulness of Jesus? So what do you have? His radical obedience and love for the Father. How do you get that? Then Paul says, through the sacraments and prayers. Put on the faithfulness of Jesus. Not just stand back and say, well, I believe in Jesus. Let me live my life. I'm a new priest. I've had the privilege and honor to do some anointings this year. I had a very powerful anointing that I thought was going to happen in a hospital in New Orleans a couple months ago. I got a call from a nephew of a gentleman who was dying. And he said, hey, Father, this guy, my uncle, wants to be anointed. So I packed up my anointing kit. It was my second anointing ever. Reread the rules, showed up at the hospital, get my album on, go into the, go into the hospital bed. And this man is wide awake, fully alert. And he says, Father, I'm so glad to have you here. I said, great. Your nephew tells me that you want him anointed. And he says, no. And I said, well, why not? And he said, I was anointed yesterday by the deacon. Or the, sorry, by the priest. And I said, uh, what, what am I doing here? And he said, I have a question for you. And I said, what's your question? And he said, um, at night, when I go to sleep, I am haunted by one thought. And I said, what's that thought? And he said, I am haunted by the thought that when I go into the box, he says, Father, I'm dying. Nothing is waiting for me on the other side. What do you have to say to that? And I paused straining in my mind for all my theological training. And I said, I have nothing to say to that. But Jesus does. And he opened up the scriptures, the Gospel of John. And at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his apostles before he goes to die, I go to prepare a place for you. When I have prepared it, I will come back and I will take you to me. And I looked at the gentleman and I said, so the only question is this. Is not what I think. But do you believe Jesus' words? Do you believe in the faithfulness of God as manifested through Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, then the next time you have that thought, put it out of your head or open up this text again. There's something that Jesus brings to us as a human family, this faithfulness, this radical reason to trust in our God again that maybe sometimes we forget when life beats us down. Paul is preaching that in Advent. God is faithful. And so even if life messes you up, even if you mess up, even if you feel you've walked so far from God that God couldn't possibly love you, St. Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Why? Because Jesus Christ is faithful. Our faith as a missionary statement. How often do we share that as Christians with our brothers and sisters? How often do we lead with that? Jesus is faithful. 
as a reason to trust in God. So this Advent, where has God been faithful to you? And who are you going to tell about it? Advent is a season to proclaim God's mercy to you. Advent is also a season that Paul reminds us to be missionaries of God's mercy. This is also a central theme for him in Romans. He says it in the passage we just read. He says it also in Romans 5. He flushes out what this means to be, in his conception of God being merciful. What does this mean? He says, while we were still weak or sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might die. But God proves his love for us, his merciful love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who's Paul talking about? I think himself. He uses the word enemies of God. Very strong language. God died for his enemies. What does Paul talk about within Galatians? I was an enemy of the church. When Paul writes that in Romans, I don't think he's talking about his generic community alone. He's talking about himself. While we were still enemies of God, God reconciled us. That describes Paul. An enemy of Christ. But through Christ's mercy, becoming reconciled, and now what's called missions, to preach that mercy to others and to show that mercy to others. In the most tender chapters of Paul in Romans, chapters 9 to 11, Paul is talking about God's merciful love all the time. And he's noticing that it's mysterious because God's merciful love in the Old Testament, almost exclusively applied to the Jewish people, is now in Paul's lifetime applied to the Gentiles. And he says this multiple times. This merciful love, of which we do not know how it works, is now being offered to the Gentiles. And he feels part of that mission. It's not been taken away from the Jewish people. It's been expanded. And that's a radical message, a radical mission, a radical notion of his Advent heart that he shares. His missionary heart of mercy was forged in an intense experience with God, God's mysterious mercy. And he lives his life sharing it with the world. He shares it with Jew and Gentile alike. And I imagine him writing that section in tears. Why? Because he's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ. And he says his heart breaks. But he lives in hope that the Lord is working even in those who rejected Christ to bring them back. And he says one day Israel will be saved too. Tender, powerful message for for a passionate Jew of his day. Where has Christ been merciful to you or in your family or in your family's history? Where has that radical experience of mercy been tasted by you? Who will we share with that with? How are we sharing God's merciful love with others? Finally, and most challengingly, Advent as a season to be a missionary of reconciliation. Advent is a season where Paul calls us to be agents of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us to you. Paul uses the word of covenant, ministry, covenant. And what is he attached to it? Primarily, reconciliation. It's been very powerful for me as a priest to be in the confessional and to be able to give God's reconciliation to others. But it has been challenging for me because when I leave the box, I have to ask myself, how do I give my reconciliation to others? How do I forgive when people have wronged me? And I'll be honest, I'm much better in the confessional offering forgiveness from outside. So it gives me pause as I pray with Paul's words to these Advent seasons that you and I are called to be missionaries of reconciliation. So in this Advent season, when family is drawn to your home, who do you need to forgive? When friends are drawn to your home, where is there a need for reconciliation? Never overlook your own heart that sometimes longs for reconciliation from God or from others, but doesn't know how to ask. Perhaps the reconciliation is not you granting it, but you asking for it. As Paul had to do, I'm sure, many nights on his knees before God as he prayed over his past and recognized places where he too had messed up. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us because it's one of the hearts of Jesus' message. When the Roman Missal changed in some of its translation about a decade ago, there was a phrase that was added right before the Our Father. We dare to say, I love that phrase, because it reminds us of the powerful mystery and charged nature of the Our Father that if we're honest with ourselves, because we pray it so often as Christians, we forget. In Greek, there's a word, it's cult, which means to the same degree as, in the same way as, to the same level as. Who's twice the Our Father? Thy kingdom come, pulse on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our trespasses, talk as we forgive others. We are asking God to forgive us to the same degree as, in the same way as, to the same level as we forgive others. We dare to say. As we pray the Our Father this Advent, the next Mass we go to, let us raise in our hearts a stirring of how we, by our baptism, have been invited to be a minister of reconciliation. St. Paul uses the plural. We have been in charge. You have been in charge. It's not a mission for him alone. Our Lord God, Jesus Christ, sends us out to be ministers of reconciliation. How will we do that this Advent? Where is it most needed in your life? Self, God, others. So to have an Advent heart is to have a missionary heart in the words of St. Paul. To be proclaimers of God's faithfulness, proclaimers of God's mercy, proclaimers of God's reconciliation. Be missionaries. Now this may be challenging for us. Again, we often have missionary conceptions of Paul and Francis Xavier. I'll share a short, share, share a short story of Cardinal Renzi when I was at the University of Dallas. Cardinal Renzi is a very famous cardinal from Africa. Um, 
very prayerful man, very inspiring man. And he came to the University of Dallas when I was a student, and he gave a talk. And he was asked, it was a talk kind of on being missionaries. And at the end, he was asked by somebody, how can I be a missionary to atheists and non-believers? They don't know Jesus. What do I talk about? Father Lorenzo was jarring, or just shocked a little bit. And he paused and he smiled. And he said, my brother, if they don't know Jesus or God, talk to them about something else first. Sports, music. Begin by being friends. Make your first contact as a missionary in friendship. And through that friendship, he says, as the heart opens, then you share God. Or in friendship, when they watch what God means to you, they will ask. He goes, never be intimidated because you don't have some kind of common ground in the faith. He said, being a missionary sometimes begins just in friendship. And maybe you never go further because the person moves away or they're not open. But he says, that's how you begin to open the heart. So where are we called this Advent season to open the heart? First ourselves then in others. By what? Sharing God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's love with Jesus. So this Advent season, let us be shaken. Let us be awakened by reflecting upon the blessings of God in our lives. Let us pray upon the faithfulness of God in our lives and in our scriptures. Let us pray upon God's mysterious and wonderful, merciful love that saved you and saved me when you were enemies of God. Let us also, in the footsteps of St. Paul, be missionaries this Advent season. Missionaries of faithfulness, of mercy, of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, you know the time. It is the hour now for you to awake from sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far advanced. The day is at hand. Let us throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and lust, not in revelry, not in rivalry, not in jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Let us put on Christ through the sacraments, through our prayers, and most importantly in how we live. Let us live with hearts like Christ's and Christ's faithfulness that we adore in the nativity of Christmas this year. Amen. Holy Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. We do have more question time if anyone has any stuff. Um, one concept that I hear about is uh, the concept of passivity. Something happens to you in the sacraments. Uh, something happened to Paul. Uh, you get admitted into seminary. It's the concept of passivity. What if you feel uh, in your life that you're waiting for something to happen in your life, something miraculous, which will motivate you to do what you're talking about? sure I understand the question. How do I wait? Is that the question? Or how am I passive? Is that the question? Um, how do you have the sense that something has happened in your life? Ah. In my encounter with Christ, you mean? How do I know that's happened? Good question. Um, first, 
our spiritual vision is much better 2020 in hindsight. So it takes a lot of reflection on life, and you have to grow in awareness, right? So that's where prayer becomes so essential. Um, if we're not praying and we're not asking ourselves, uh, where is God working, actively asking that question, we'll miss. Because like in the Old Testament, uh, was it Elijah on the mountain, right? He expects God to be in the noise and the thunder and the fire, and God's looking at him, is this spirit leaving? And so sometimes you have these moments with, like, Paul, who's knocked out of his horse. Other times you have God's whisper. But if our culture is too noisy, if our life is too loud, we will miss the whisper. So how do you know God's active in your life? Well, first, if you're alive, that means you're being sustained by the loving presence of God right now. Secondly, if you're Christian, you've been given the gift of faith, right? So you have two things right there to be grateful. You know God's active in your life. So the question is, how do I grow in gratitude for those two things? And then from that space, notice where else in my life has God acted, and I take prayer reflection uh, from there. That's how I came to learn about it. We have a question back here. Father, could you just comment um, a little bit about, you've listed a grace for us to pray for during Advent, and kind of how to, for us to acknowledge that, to kind of hone in on the graces that we need to ask for and put them in our prayer life? The grace on the handout sheet or just the ones that come up in the talk? Yeah, so the grace on the handout sheet to come to know Jesus more intimately, to love him more completely, and to follow him, right, more nearly. So that kind of hits the three per parts of the human person, right? Knowledge, will, action, right? And so don't chain yourself to that grace alone. Again, my, as I started off the talk with, what nourishes the heart more than anything else is an interior experience of God. So hopefully something of what I've said, not me, but the words of Paul, hopefully has touched your heart. There's your prayer and your grace, right? I gave you a starting grace, which is what I think of like a picture frame, and my time with God is a blank canvas in my prayer, right? So the picture frame orients my mind and heart to what I ask from the Lord, and then the picture frame is what God brings up in my heart. So if that picture frame of knowing Christ, following Christ, and loving Christ is not as helpful, maybe something that Paul said is, one, use that picture frame as your grace. But for me, when I use the word grace, it's the framing of the answer into my prayer. Right? That's what I use. So I, I always try and name it up front. So that way when I sit in prayer, I'm not just wandering around aimlessly. I'm like, Lord, I'm asking this of you. Pope Francis tells us to be people that beg consolation from God. Don't just come as blank slates, but say, Lord, I'm asking for this for my life. Now, he may not grant it. It's on his time. God's God. But he loves to hear our hearts, right? Lord, this is the grace I ask for you, God, that's you. And if you don't want to give it to me, what else do you want to give me? So beg God for that consolation, beg God for that grace, but then let God be God and teach you in your prayer. One or two more? This just came to me as we were talking. Um, we're talking about Advent, and we're talking about Paul. And so I'm thinking of Advent and I'm thinking about the Blessed Mother. And I was just curious, maybe we don't know, maybe you don't know. Um, do we know at all, like, how Paul would have, would have even known about the Blessed Mother? Would he, would he think about her? I mean, I come from a Protestant background and, like, we read Paul, Paul. And I never thought about Paul and Mary. Like, was she praying for him? Did she see him do anything? Do we know any of that? Definitively? We know that Paul lived as a contemporary of Jesus and Mary. Did they ever cross paths? No. There's, there's no written evidence, but you know, John says more could have been written down than 
what more happened than actually could be written down. Um, it's worth praying about. Uh, and imagine, what would that look, what would they think if Paul met Mary post-resurrection? It's not impossible. He goes to Jerusalem. So I guess the question is, well, when did Mary die and her dormition and her ascension to heaven, right? Um, he's definitely dancing around this being. Did they ever dance together? I don't know. I think there's no more. All right, great. All right. Well, then. Thank you, Father John. Good to be with you all. I'll hang out up front if there's more questions. Have a great Advent.